we're now in the fifth industrial revolution so that the jobs that our children will have when they graduate college have not been invented yet. So we used to be in a factory model where you were in the math and the science and the homage. And, and, and now the things that Google, IBM, that, what the, the skills they want to hire for, Jewish day schools are so, per, we are perfect. This is what we do. This is Chavrusa. We need you to be able to get along with other people. We need you to be able to research things. We need you to be able to be curious, to investigate, to be able to dialogue with respect and to be able to live with someone not agreeing with you. This is Jewish day school. Like this is Talmud. We are perfectly situated to teach and embody the skills of 21st century skills, like the fifth industrial revolution. But our school structures are still stuck in paradigms of, you know, factory model fourth industrial revolution. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Six weeks ago, the Orthodox Conundrum released a panel discussion with Rabbi Moshe Simkovich, Mrs. Rachel Schwartzberg, Mrs. Olivia Friedman, and Rabbi Pesach Somer entitled The Crisis of Orthodox Teacher Retention. That episode received a fair bit of comment and at the same time raised as many questions as it solved. For that reason, I decided to record a follow-up episode with expert educational innovators to address additional problems and to suggest further solutions. To that end, I invited Rabbi Shmuel Feld and Mrs. Rachel Levitt-Klein-Dratch to discuss their feelings about the direction of day school education in much of the Orthodox world. I was so impressed with their knowledge and their innovative suggestions. They both combined the expertise that comes from experience and study with the creativity that is the hallmark of -of out-of-the-box thinking. Whether we were discussing our overemphasis on titles and how to overcome that problem, or the new ways that we need to think about education and teaching, or the necessity of involving the totality of community institutions, not just schools, in using teachers' skills and hiring them for their programming, Rabbi Feld and Mrs. Dratch were constantly suggesting new ways of thinking about a problem that has been around for decades. Mrs. Rachel Levitt-Klein-Dratch is wholeheartedly invested in the Jewish world of education. Rachel has held meaningful roles at numerous day schools, including Frisch, Ramaz, Maimonides, Fuchs Mizrahi, Berman Academy, and Beth Tfila. Rachel has also been director of SLED Educational Consulting. She spends her summers at Camp Mosheva I.O. running drama and special programming. Rachel has a master's degree in Jewish education from Yeshiva University, is a Mandel Jerusalem Fellow, participated in the Mandel Teacher Education Program, and has served as scholar-in-residence in many communities. She is currently Director of Educational Innovation at Prisma. Rabbi Shmuel Feld's vision of education stems from the dance floor and the balcony. On the dance floor, he served for 25 years in Jewish education as a teacher, instructional leader, and principal. In the balcony, Shmuel uses his master's in education from Harvard and graduate work at Boston College to help day schools as the founding director of the Jewish Education Innovation Challenge. Shmuel brings his many professional experiences outside of schools to inform his work, including running field training for the U.S. Public Health Service. Mrs. Rachel Levitt-Klein-Dratch and Rabbi Shmuel Feld, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. It's fantastic. About a month ago, I recorded an episode that talked about the teacher crisis in Orthodox day schools. It was precipitated by an article by Rachel Schwartzberg in Jewish Action entitled The Great Teacher Shortage. And that discussion largely involved the perspective of teachers and administrators, as well as that of the author of the article. 
You're both thinkers and teachers of teachers. And today I want to hear your perspectives on some of those problems we mentioned, but with the larger goal of finding solutions and perhaps out-of-the-box solutions. So let's start off, go right in, with the first issue that was mentioned and was something which we spent a lot of time on, and that's the issue of inadequate financial compensation to teachers. Subsumed within this are all sorts of other issues that we can address shortly, but let's start off with the simple fact that teachers too often have a difficult time making ends meet because we are told they are underpaid. What is your response to that, Rachel? It's a great question. I think that I want to take a step back and say that the challenge of finding the most wonderful people in the world to educate our, our children and elevate us is everyone's challenge. And I think it's important that we understand that in order to address this, this specific area, it's everyone's issue. This is the issue of, of parents. It's the issue of people with no kids. It's the issue of rabbinical you know, people in the, in the community. It's the issue of federation. It's, it's the kids issue too. Um, all of us are involved in this. So for example, if we're talking about benefits packages, right? So thinking about some radical partnerships that we haven't had before and working with, let's say, what would happen if all the Jewish organizations in, in a given area got together and had some shared benefits packages? And so that it wasn't just small school, small school, small school, but we could share benefits packages across. And who might be the right people to help facilitate that? Um, not just buying supplies, for example, for schools, but what if in any given area, all of the Jewish leaders, service, you know, lay professionals, and it, you know, um, uh, people who are getting paid to serve the community, we all benefit from that giant benefits package. And that would be anything from JCC membership and show membership, um, honoring, uh, you know, I think Olivia mentioned this last time, honoring, you know, let's say my kids don't want to, I don't want to send my kids for any number of reasons to the school I teach in. So honoring a financial break for a, another Jewish educator in a different school. I think better coordination, this purposeful and urgent now is, is probably the most important first step there. Shmuel, what do you say about that? Well, for every complex problem, there's a clear and straightforward answer that's wrong. So to think that, you know, that you're going to resolve this, uh, you know, Tara Masora tried to put this forward as an idea that if you increase teacher salaries, you're going to resolve the retention issue. So let me say that with a caveat. I believe every teacher should be paid somewhere in the six digits and in American dollars, and that they should 100%, 100% be honored as the primary shaper of our children's lives in the next generation of Jews. The fact that they are not treated in that form is ridiculous, and it is uh, against, I don't know, 3,300 years worth of tradition about how we do things. The notion that we have uh, people who have been lauding the idea of teachers living in poverty as a lifestyle is the reason why you have an organization called Chaste Leiv that gives out uh, food to Rubeum because they can't make ends meet. It's a difficult situation, and it's not going to get solved by increasing the money. I agree that it should be increased. There's no question. But if you're talking about resolving a complex issue, you need to understand that there's a complex answer that has to go to that issue. Well, let's talk about what some of those complex answers might be, though. What can we do? Can you take it a little bit further and tell me what types of answers there might be out there? What's the beginning of an answer? The, one of the first big functions in school is to remember that the end, the end result is the students and, and be able to raise the students one year worth of, of education in one year. That is, that's one of the major functions you want to do and get them closer to certain types of goals. And I don't want to say it's amorphous, different communities have different goals that they want to work on. At the same time, if you elevate 
the teachers by giving them better kinds of training, if you elevate the teachers by giving them more autonomy about what they can do, if you have a situation in which the parent body and the board look at the teachers and say, these are people who are not just random person I got off the street that I happen to be able to fit in the classroom because I didn't have anyone there on August 21. Instead, you look at them as artists and not technicians. That's the kind of uh, role that we're talking. About. I say a little bit vague and a little bit pearly because it changes from place to place. The way that you're going to have a teacher who is at a school in a large metropolitan area is not the same as when you have a, a teacher who's in a school in a small metropolitan area. So it needs to be fit for each one. Okay, but Shmuel, you said you, and I'm quoting you, you have to start treating them as artists. And I yeah. understand what you mean, but the question is, who is you? Because that leads to a different problem that you also alluded to, that parents yeah. and the community at large often has tremendous disrespect for the teachers. It's not open disrespect necessarily, but the way that it was presented, yeah, maybe it is. I see you're nodding your head. The way it was presented yeah, in the last podcast, <laughs> right? The way it was presented on the last podcast by Rachel Schwartzberg is that a teacher who would complain about a child in his or her class at a kiddish would be fired. Whereas a parent approaching a teacher to complain about that teacher in the cheese aisle of the supermarket, that's just de rigueur. That's how it goes. So my question is, how do we change the opinion of the you out there, the average person? Because it's one thing for us to say that the administrators might have to have a better attitude towards their teachers. But how do we change the opinion of the amcha, of the parents? Rachel, what do you think about that? So I want to um, I want to start by saying that this is actually a symbol of something very healthy. So I want to take a step back. It used to be that you would never criticize a teacher. You know, the three of us went to my Maimonides school growing up. You know, if a teacher said something, it was it was that was it, and you would never hear the kid's point. And now that we're much more aware of safety and child protective laws, and we understand how horrible not listening to the children can be. This is a very, this is the extreme part of a very important and healthy step in um, creating safe schools. We've now, we, we've now gone to an extreme of that, but I want to point that this is actually a very, this is indicative of a healthy response. So what we need to do now is educate, and I think this goes back to what I said earlier, educating everybody. So my first piece is let's do a massive PR campaign about what it means to be a teacher. And this involves the us, right? This is everybody. These are Parents, these are students should be involved in this. This is where we, the biggest uh, compliment someone could give a young teenager is, wow, you should be a teacher someday. Where parents, the biggest dream they have is that it would be the biggest compliment to say, you know, what is, what is your, what is your daughter do? Oh, she's, she's a mora. Like, how's amazing. Wow. Wow. There should be a wait list to get into schools of Jewish education in a sense. Like, and part of it is that, you know, there's, it's a chicken and egg thing, right? If, if there's so few teachers applying for a job as a Judaic studies teacher, let's just say, I can't make the standard to get a job very high. But that also makes it so that no one has to get those high standards in order to get a job. So raising the standards of the kinds of people that we want to hire might not be possible because there might not be enough people. Right. So it's, it's a full court press, in other words. We need to go at this very right. purposefully with many avenues and many options. It's a complete, we need to differentiate our instruction. So this is about promoting how we speak about people. And I'll give you one last example. Please. So when I was working in a high school, I was giving a Dvar Torah once about Lashon Hara. And I said to the kids, I said, okay, so for example, how many of you ever heard my name come up at your Shabbat table? Every hand went up. <laughs> now, okay. I, 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 and, and it was a humbling 
terrifying moment, but it's true because once you're an administrator, you're a fodder for food. And my son, I remember, was very young at the time, and he came home from a Shabbat lunch at a friend's house, and he was crying, and he said, Ima, they were talking about you. And I thought to myself, you know, I grew up thinking that if you have a teenager at your table, you, you want to get them talking. So it's socially appropriate to say, so how's school? Who do you like? What do you not? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And it's very hard to unlearn that. And so I had to unlearn that myself. And we teach that at my Shabbat table. So we had to find new ways to talk to our teenagers that were socially acceptable, that didn't encourage them to badmouth. That does, and I also want to say, I always say at my Shabbat table, please talk to trusted adults in, a, in an appropriate, quiet place about any issues you have that aren't positive. Mm-hmm. But the Shabbat table is not the place for that. So that is an example of like what we what we accept is socially acceptable, like this, like the like the cheese aisle, right? Of I need to be able to talk to kids at the table and get them engaged without asking them to speak lashon hara. There are two bits there. The the first one is that if you don't understand your role in the problem, you can't understand your role in the solution. And one of the things that we've been promoting at JIC is the concept that there is really four parts of the ecosystem in Jewish day schools. There is the educator part, which are the teachers, the administrators, there's the parents and the students, there's the donors and the board, and then there are outside influences as small as a local rabbi and as large as Prisma. Giving you a plug. There's a concept that's in there that everyone's got to understand what their role looks like. When a board overdoes their role and they micromanage the educator part of it, it brings the entire system out of balance. And it makes that into something very difficult. The second part that I want to make sure to, to, to put that in, that was only one example. It could happen a lot of each, each role can be overdone and make the system out of balance. The second is that there is a really, what Rachel really put her finger on there, which is really good, is the idea of the positivity part. In Luria Academy, for instance, they came up with the idea of four uh, responsibilities that the uh, students, teachers, parents, et cetera, have put forward and they are really enforced across the entire structure of that uh, culture. There is not a part that isn't held accountable that everything from how they send out a memo to how they deal with a student who has issues to how they deal with a parent who has issues, all those people are dealt with in the same way and although parents understand how to deal with the school in that way and there are no exceptions made. And the problem I have often is there are people who have exceptional parts in a system where they say, well, I have X authority, so I can do X thing, whether that's I have X money, I have X rabbi of a community, I'm X principal, whatever it is. Those things are oftentimes the Yitzhahara that is in those systems that we do. Can I just add one more thing? I yes. think that there's a, like, an elephant in the room that it needs to be said. And Shmuel, you said it so beautifully. We have um, lay people who are telling the professionals how to do their job. And what's fascinating is, is that we have, there's 21st century skills. The in, we're now in the fifth industrial revolution so that the jobs that our children will have when they graduate college have not been invented yet. So we used to be in a factory model where you were in the math and the science and the homage. And, and, and now the things that Google, IBM, that, what the, the skills they want to hire for, Jewish day schools are so, per, we are perfect. This is what we do. This is Chavrusa. We need you to be able to get along with other people. We need you to be able to research things. We need you to be able to be curious, to investigate, to be able to dialogue with respect and to be able to live with someone not agreeing with you. This is Jewish day school. Like this is Talmud. We are perfectly situated to teach and embody the skills of 21st century skills, like the fifth industrial revolution. But our school structures are still stuck in paradigms of, you know, factory model fourth industrial revolution. And we're, we're in this massive transitionary time. Even if COVID didn't hit, 
if the democratization of technology means that my role as a teacher is no longer the sage on the stage, but my role has changed while, you know, while the bus is, I'm changing the tires while the bus is moving. So there's this massive change in the world and it's impacting education. Parents still expect familiar familiarity because they feels comfortable, but we need to change it. Students are growing up in a world that's completely different than the one their parents were brought up in. And the world we're preparing them for is unknown. So it's a very strange spot and exciting space to be in. What you're saying, both of you, it's really fascinating. It's really thinking out of the box and it's a different way of approaching the problem. But at the same time, in some ways, it makes me feel a bit overwhelmed. Because if we're talking about entirely new models, if we're talking about thinking about, as you say, Rachel, the fifth industrial revolution, and we're stuck in an older model, the bottom line is our schools are not-for-profit organizations that rely upon donors. Those donors want things done a certain way. So it's one thing for educational experts to come up and say, we need to do things radically different. But bottom line, you kind of have to follow the money because if they're only going to give money, if the school works the way that they expect it to work then there's not much you can do. Now, admittedly, it could be you can be lucky. It could be that you'll get the head of Google to give the money for your school, and perhaps he'll be open to new ideas. I don't know. But a lot of the people giving the money presumably want a school that is the kind of school they think, without educational background, that they think is the kind of school that it should be. How can we get out of that catch-22 of trying to find new ways of doing things while at the same time acknowledging that we're not the final authority on it because people want to give to something they approve of? You've said something that's really very strong there, and um, it's one of the things that, that we've been working on for years is trying to change how uh, donors look at situations. One of the things I've noticed is that if you look at the wave of current donors in Jewish day schools and look at the, at the list of them, there's a large chunk of them who did not attend Jewish day school as a child. Um, and it is in, certainly in the United States, it, it, is the, it is the case. And they have, are convinced that this is the form of continuity that's necessary is to be able to create Jewish day schools, create the, the children and grandchildren that they're, they're looking at. So I, I push back a little bit that you cannot create new, new models because if you can convince groups of people that certain things are detrimental to what they really want in the end, then they will go with that. That's one of the things that's been happening with certain types of, of uh, people who are creating embedded expertise like Hidden Sparks and, uh, and uh, JNTP and a whole bunch of others have, have uh, changed the model pretty significantly in the last 30 years. And it's, it's not the way that, that it was. So the answer is that to short pushback is, yeah. But also the second pushback is you can't imagine something in a lot of ways you haven't seen in the sense that there are a lot of people in the 1800s, the, the misquoted idea from is that Ford said people want faster horses instead of a, a car. You can't imagine what you haven't seen before. So that's one of the things that is very difficult is how you play that vision game, which is one of the things that Rachel and I do a lot. I think what we're asking of ourselves as a community is to envision our roles differently because that's what they are. It's almost like admitting that our roles have changed. So the role of the teacher has profoundly changed. You know, you covered that in the last podcast. The role of the administrator has changed and the role of the board members have changed. We've all modified because of need. Um, and it's important to acknowledge and then think, okay, now that it's changed, what's the best way to do this job? We know how brains work. We know, we, we know how we're learning all the time how to teach better and more effectively. How do we translate that and how we interact with one another is, is important. Um, I think, for example, if, if when we apply concepts about growth mindset, which is, you know, kind of 
a cute term that we use a lot. What would it look like if boards had a growth mindset? if administrations had a growth mindset so that when I we set up mentoring and coaching for teachers, whether it's a new teacher or a veteran teacher, and we really think about the arc of their professional career, right? When we really think about, you don't have to become administrator to develop in your career, to further, to expand, to grow. And I have that conversation. I think Olivia mentioned this last time about, I have the time to one-on-one with each of, as an administrator, with each of my staff members. And and know really think about growing with them. And, you know, the head of school can do that with the board. And what does it look like to slow down our moments, to really have relationships, to really build those things? I think that the number one thing Jewish day schools have is relationships. You're not, you're not sending your kids to school. You're not mortgaging your home, right? So that, so that I can teach them how to read Rashi because you could do that on the internet, but you're doing it because of the context in which you learn what Judaism looks and lives and feels like. And that's where part of, Part of the job of every teacher and every administrator and every parent is now to in, invest in our children the desire to be that teacher for the future. So I think that re-envisioning in, in very practical spaces, I don't think it has to stay ivory tower, giving very practical, specific places that that can work, and also realizing it takes time. Um, I do think that there's an urgency right now, and I'm hoping that this urgency is the tipping point for change. Um, not just in terms of re-envisioning how we structure our schools, but how we talk about and train and think about our teachers. Think about our kids spend more time in school than they do at home in, a, in your typical Jewish day school. Who do you, what kind of person do you want them spending their time with? And if I badmouth that person at my Shabbos table, right, or I'd be embarrassed for my kid to become that kind of person, I just mortgage my house and I'm sending my kid all day. So we need to, you know, reframe it in such a way that we are looking for the skills we're missing, but that does mean that I don't have them. Like they have to, I have to admit that I don't have those skills. It's like, it's, it's socially acceptable for me as a parent to say, I, I'm not a digital native, but it's not socially acceptable for me as a parent to say, I don't know about certain social emotional nuances or I, what I did before maybe wasn't the best practice. So how do we create that growth mindset? I agree with everything you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. In some ways though, I feel like we're almost swimming upstream because in this era, it seems to me, and obviously I'm not alone, because of the nature of social media and media in general, and the fact that everyone has access to everything, I'm sure you've seen it as much as I have, that everyone considers him or herself an expert on everything. So at the exact time that we have to say, acknowledge your own inability to do this particular job, we're in a world where people are telling doctors that they're wrong without any more information than what they got on a YouTube video. And certainly the same is true in things that appear on the surface easier, like teaching a Rashi. So how can we go against that? How do we work at the exact time that we need to tell people these are real experts and everyone else believes they're experts in everything? How do we do that in this society nowadays? That question really seems simple, but it actually needs to be unpacked a little bit. There are a couple of pieces of that. One of them is if you live in a community in which you see teachers not as experts, as a regular function that Rachel was talking about before, where it's this weird chicken and egg problem where I need someone and therefore I'm going to bring in people who won't necessarily look like experts, et cetera, and going back and forth, it makes it difficult to to stand someone up and say this person's an expert, especially if you have people who are in the field who are not experts in being able to approach some of the topics that they as they should have expertise. The second part of that of that problem to unpack is the idea that we look at student growth not as Rachel was just saying very very strong piece there about the idea that you should look at things not as static snapshots 
but rather as patterns of change. And that the idea isn't that we have, you know, can they do, can, they, can this teacher understand X amount about how the Gemara works or X amount about how, um, about how Rashi works. I often ask heads of school the following question that tells me a lot about them very quickly. If you have whatever your highest level class is in math, would you hire a PhD in math or a person who has an MSW degree who happens to know some math in order to teach that math? And it will tell me a lot about the teacher, very, the, the head of school very quickly, what kind of teacher they think should go in that classroom. Because if they think that it's the PhD in math, that might help a few of the kids who are there. But the MSW has an understanding of relationships and how community works and understanding about how that those kind of functions uh, affect how a classroom works and how to grow children in a certain type of way. And as a result, you then switch the question over to, now, who would you hire to teach Gemara? Someone who's been in Kolo for 20 years or someone who knows how to learn Gemara who happens to be able to be, have fantastic rapport with children. I would push back on that, Shuang, because part of the growth mindset, right, is that we believe that adults change too. So I want to get past the label of the PhD and the MSW. I don't want the head of school deciding who to hire based on only the degree. I want you to be in relationship. Our superpower is relationship. It's getting past the resume. I want you to get curious and then say to me, if I think that for this group of children in this moment, the candidate with a PhD is the most appropriate, what supports can I put in place to help this person thrive so that the students will thrive? And this paradigm of what it's my job as an administrator to bring out the best in my students, that's my job. So I say this all the time when I'm training people is that it's a quote Ray Ringel, you know, it's a fractal model, big broccoli looks like little broccoli. Everything you want your, your, your teachers to do in their class, you administrators, you do for your teachers. I need to know my teachers as well as I know my students. I need to model for them how I treat. I, I got to greet you at the door. My meetings have to be like lesson plans that are worthy of your attention. I've got to understand you and scaffold for you where I'm going to help you succeed. But here's the challenge. But among all of that is that let's even say here's, I want to do that as administrator. I have so many extra things on my plate. And now we've just added working with the community. And I'm going to add one more thing now while we're at it. Shul membership is going down, not as much in the Orthodox community, but still. Schools are even more central to the forming of identity and community than they ever were before. That's why alumni is even so, more, so much more essential. The schools keep expanding their their, the, the need for them and their role in the community. We keep adding to the thing that we ask our administrators and teachers to do. So in the reframing of this, I think it's more crucial to have the right person in the right job and less about like what, you know, principal, assistant principal, this is your role. Yeah, but the point that you were making there, you took what I did with it, which was a black and white issue and uh, really clearly theoretical. And you said, now let's apply it to reality. Obviously, if I have a if I have a class with someone who is a PhD, I'm going to try to give them support so that you know, having met a lot of PhDs in math, no no you know offense to those people who have it who are listening, but they're less likely to get along with a class of uh, high school kids than someone who has an MSW degree. So it's applying my theoretical to reality is is not what I was going after. What I was going after was trying to demonstrate to the principal or head of school that there are certain functions in thinking about how a classroom works. Now that being said. I would say 100% that one of the things you have to do as administrators create a platform for whoever teacher that you have in there to, to maximize their ability to grow the student's functional, spiritual, intellectual, and self-regulating self. 
That is one of the things that is is absolutely uh, that, that you need to be able to do. That being said, the kind of training and the kind of work that I see happening with a lot of uh, a lot of teachers winds up not doing a lot of the things you were just saying. It winds up being more content and more craft knowledge and less about that creation of the special thing that we really saw come out during COVID, that relationships are key. What you're both saying right now, it's so important. These are ideas I frankly haven't really thought about. And I want to take what Rachel said a minute ago about the relationship between teachers and students should somehow be parallel to the relationship between administrators and teachers. And that which administrators expect from their teachers, they should also treat their teachers in the same way. It leads to the question, and I know, Rachel, you did say that we should concentrate less on who's principal, who's assistant principal, and so on. But it does lead to the question of promotions. And one problem that does come up is, are schools giving teachers the opportunity for advancement, for professional advancement, in ways that give them the motivation to continue? Some people are thrilled being teachers, and they want to be a teacher in the same position that they are now, and they'll be happy doing that for their entire career. Other people would like to be kicked upstairs and have an administrative role, a planning role on a higher level in the school. So regardless of what we call them, are promotions an issue? Is this something which is actually a problem? And if it is, how do we solve it? Scott, I, I would just ask you to clarify, why, just un, help me unpack the assumption here. Why do people want promotions in your question? I can't speak for anyone in particular, but I would think offhand there are probably two reasons. Number one, that chances are an administrator or someone on a higher level in the school hierarchy is paid more. And second of all, because there's the question of, for lack of a better term, power, the ability to shape the school, more authority. That's something which people often enjoy. They like being able to shape something, to have that creative input that they might have on a smaller level if they're teaching in a classroom versus being the principal of an entire elementary school, for example. That's what I think offhand. There might be other reasons also that you can add. One of the things that happens in the public school world and in the Jewish day school world is that people leave the classroom in order to go up to administrative levels in order to be able to be paid more in order to be able to, in some ways, have more control over what's going on. There are, uh, again, complex situations. So here you have a problem with the fact that a lot of people who uh, control the pay scales that are going on really uh, are seeing this in a hierarchical vein in which they see teachers as the, as the service provider and a technician, and they don't see them as someone who is the upper person who needs to be supported by a cast of characters. And as a result of that, you wind up with a situation in which I know many teachers who have left the classroom who are excellent teachers and they're only so-so administrators because it's not the same malacha. It's not the same concept of what the kind of work is that you're doing. And as a result, they you lose a great teacher and you gain a so-so administrator who is going to be paid more because that's what happens when they have the kind of, you know, when you like getting new shoes and eating every day. So it's- <laughs> Call me it's crazy. Of, uh, we're, we're an extravagant <laughs> lifestyle. So it's, it, it, it is not unreasonable to do that. The power issue is a lot of times you have people who have great vision. Uh, I'm not saying we don't have enough control freaks in our religion, but there are a lot of people who have vision as to what they want to do in a school and how they want it to see it, to see it run. There is a wonderful role called master teacher that uh, Sri Grummet uh, introduced in, 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 a, in a piece recently that Sharon Frendahl has talked about a bunch, my colleague has talked about a bunch. And it's essentially the idea that it's a, that is keeping a teacher in the classroom and doing the work that they're doing, but expanding the ability to affect other teachers, whether it is that they are the mentor for other teachers or the example for other teachers or job is to go out and find other educational uh, methodologies in order to be able to make the classroom run better. The things that Rachel was talking about earlier, she was talking about the fact that we get more science about how education works as we move on. 
And if you are, you know, if you're on the dance floor, it's very tough to see things than if you're in the balcony. And uh, having been, Rachel and I both have been on the dance floor and in the balcony, there are certain things that you can see in the balcony that you can't see on the dance floor and vice versa. So being a master teacher puts you in a, a situation where you can flip back and forth between those. And it, it's an interesting idea and an interesting role that I think really needs to be more thoughtful of people to put into day schools. Yeah, I agree 100%. You know, I like the whole concept of like, wouldn't it be great if we could afford to give teachers a Shemitah year? Like every seven, no, I'm not joking, a sabbatical. Take mom, it's no, a sabbatical. I'm laughing in astonishment. That would be amazing. Um, but I, I think that there's a number of things. And um, part of the reason that people can't bump up is because there's no more room and the administration. Um, and the people who are current administrators, they kind of want to feed their kids too. And, and I don't want to lose my rock star people. So I can't, like, where am I moving them? Am I giving away part of my job? So what does that look like? And it might be really interesting talking, going back to the beginning of in terms of solutions, what would it look like if we work together as communities and think about what communal roles our rock star teachers could play that could give them a boost in salary and harness their amazing teaching abilities, whatever that might look like. And again, I think it would have to take a lot of real thought really thoughtful getting to know each person's strengths and what they might be interested in doing the other the other thing about wanting to move up is and I, I really like what you said about you know wanting to make a difference in the world and I think that the more that administrators can get to know each person who's in on their team and envision with them what fulfillment looks like for that person that would be that's that's the key um, what I was trying to say before about the titles wasn't that I don't care who's a principal or assistant principal, but that we sometimes, an interesting trend I've noticed is that more and more schools are getting away from, we need to fill this role of this title, assistant principal, principal, dean of students, and in more into, I have a need to fill a number of different roles. I'd like to find people who bring cohort to, you know, strengths to these kinds of things. So they're creating different kinds of titles, director of teacher and learning. Um, coordinator of curriculum. I'm making it up, but like there are interesting titles that speak to different people's strengths that maybe used to fall under an assistant principal or a principal's job, but we're giving people permission to do the things that they're really great at. And let's, let's piecemeal out these things. Um, and last thing about that is during COVID, three roles that used to never be considered admin are now part of the admin team. So learning specialists, school, school counselors, and ed tech. And now those three roles have become part of the key admin, administrative team. And most schools are keeping them as part of the administrative team. So that's fascinating. What does it look like to have those voices as part of your conversation? And I think administrative teams benefit from it, having those voices, having the master teacher's voice. But then as a parent, I'm mortgaging my house. I also wanna feed my kids. And if the school has 17 administrators on their bill, it's really upsetting to me on the one hand, right? So how do we package that? Two things. One, the role I also would add that Rachel didn't say was school nurse also became yes, extraordinarily yes, important. Yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and, Thank and you. Thank you for adding that. And the second is the problem with the communal integration issue is that it's been done very poorly in the past. What happens is in small, in small Jewish communities, um, and they, the teacher is asked to, as part of the what's going on in the community, to go and do synagogue education and to go and do all sorts of other sort of adult education pieces as part of their job. And they're essentially being utilized 
in ways that's stretching them thin. And that's and so when you say the integration piece, I say yes, but the caveat is it's got to be much more thoughtful than it's for sure. Right, something has to come off the plate. Yeah, right. That's right, exactly that's right. You can't keep adding. Right. That's that's essential. What you're both describing right now is very much, and obviously this is what you're getting at all along, this idea of an integrated model where we no longer can look at the school as an independent entity and the shul is an independent entity and whatever other communal institutions there are an independent entity. But everything, including the JCC and the schools and the shuls, whatever else might be out there, should somehow be working together. This gets back to what you said at the beginning, Rachel, about that full court press, that we all have to be involved in changing the perception, but it sounds like we have to also have everybody involved in trying to find ways for teachers to maximize their strengths, maximize their usage in ways that doesn't detract from something else. For example, something that was mentioned in the previous podcast that I did, that educational panel, was people will say, well, a wonderful thing about being a teacher is you might not get paid that much, but you do have the summers off. You do have plenty of vacation time. The problem, of course, is that, okay, but if I don't get a job at a camp, it doesn't mean anything. I'd rather be working and making money. And even at a camp, who says I'm going to make that much money? If, however, the entire community can find roles for those teachers during those off times, perhaps there are ways that we can increase the salary while also benefiting the community. Rachel, you're laughing. Are you telling me that I'm wrong or you, you're like, or wishful thinking? I'm saying that, that, is a, that that's a very true perception, right? So if, I, if I'm a teacher and I have, I have children, then, then not working in the summer is not true because I'm working. I'm just taking care of my offspring or someone else's offspring. Um, and if I'm, if I'm a teacher, I don't, I, I, let me say it in the positive. Every single teacher I know is working the entire summer preparing for the next year. Um, and every night it takes on average three to four hours to do a good prep well. So if I need a couple of hours every day in the summer to not prep, I think that's good. I just, it's, 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 it's ludicrous to me to say that. That's that's not how it works, and I and I don't hear honestly, also. right? I don't think that I don't buy that. But I would say this too: we need to hear a parent voice here. There's a lot. Of, like Rabbi Simcovich last time said, the students' voice are missing. We have a lot of educators. There's a parent voice here because, as a parent, let's say I I I I don't have a lot of money as a parent. I'm working so hard. I send you my kids. I need you to give my kids everything, and I'm disappointed because the truth is, it is inconsistent. The quality is inconsistent. And I'm doing this for Hashem and because I believe in it, but because it's inconsistent, I'm so disappointed and I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm literally not doing things in my life. Not what do you mean it's inconsistent? As a parent, what do you mean by the that? The quality of the education in many Jewish day schools is inconsistent for all the different reasons we've mentioned before. But as a parent, I'm just saying that there is a piece here where that complaint is not about the teachers. That complaint is, come on, do better by my kid. Do better, do better. And the truth is, we as a community, we can do that. But it's hard. It's really hard. It is hard. And what I was saying before about roles is the role of the parent is it's not about the school, it's about my kid. Yeah. And the role of the teacher is it's about the classroom. And I have to teach them all as individuals. And I have to make sure to get every individual to grow. But it's about the classroom. So you're going to have a natural conflict there. That uh, that's going to happen, especially if you have a kid who, as we've been seeing in the last 30 years, this incredible growth in individualized education as a result of different types of learning issues that have come out and different types of social issues that have come out. So the joke that I used to say was everyone has an IEP to sit in the front row of the classroom. You're going to have a teacher teaching in the round. They're going to have like just this, like be circled by the students 
and, and turning around every couple of seconds. There are lots of different complex issues that are going on in this piece that you're saying. I agree with you totally from a parent perspective that one of the things that gets very frustrating is when you feel that your kid, for instance, isn't the loud kid, isn't the, the kid who's failing there, the middle kid who uh-huh. seems to be slipping through the yes. cracks. Your kid isn't going to make enough trouble that they're going to get that kind of uh, attention and they're not going to have great grades mm-hmm. and make that mm-hmm. kind of attention. And the best thing that, that you have is your child's going to be able to be part of a group. So uh, as an apparent, that's usually not sufficient for what you want for your child. Mm-hmm. Right. And what you're saying is a serious issue. It's not a little thing. Right. And I think, I think that part of what our role has to be is to think, what are we doing to, to help each member of our community thrive? And the admin does it for the teachers. And the teachers have to do that for each student. And if I, as a parent, feel like, listen, my kid's teacher is doing the best that he or she can, but they really know my kid. That's great. I, the three of us grew up in Maimonides. And we all, I think, all had Rabbi Wilgamis as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember that my mom and dad used to say that a parent-teacher conference is aligned to Rabbi Wilgamis. You know, to me, Rabbi Wilgamis was always long, especially at the end of the night, because you would get online to meet with Rabbi Wilgamis, who is like an angel tzaddik. You, you wanted know? some good news. Exactly. And, and, you, and he would tell you <laughs> specific things about your kid. I don't, I, when I was in high school, we used to fight over whose desk could get closest to Rabbi Wilgamis' desk, you know, because we, and, and the truth is, okay, so you can't, you can't be Rabbi Wilgamis, but like, if, if you feel like your kid is loved, if you, you as a student feel like your teacher really cares for you and really respects you, that's everything. So yeah, I 100%. think channeling that relationship mindfully, but, and, but it's, it's everybody. And I think that understanding how lonely each of those stakeholders are, like the parent is lonely, the student is lonely, the teacher is lonely, the admin is lonely, the donor is lonely. Like we're all, it's really challenging to be all of those different people. And, and we're going to make mistakes, but we all really want this to work. You're both discussing that disconnect. I can speak from my own experience. When I used to run a yeshiva, I remember one particular situation that my co-worker yeshiva and I had a very serious situation with one particular student, and we acted as we did, whatever the case was. And it was very interesting because our teachers came to us and very respectfully and genuinely told us they thought we made a big mistake in the way we did it. And when we spoke to administrators from other yeshivas, Everyone said, oh, of course you did the right thing. There are different perspectives depending on who you are and how you look at it. Are you looking at it from down here? Are you looking at it from this side? Are you looking at it from this side? So I really do understand that bridging it may ultimately be impossible. Not everyone can see everything from every perspective. But the reason that that worked out as an okay situation and didn't cause the yeshiva to implode, even though it was a serious situation, was because there was a general undercurrent of respect that even though the teachers disagreed, they also understood that we were being genuine. This was not a selfish move on our part, but something that we had to do for the sake of the institution. And they realized that. And we also understood that our teachers weren't trying to undermine us. They spoke Mm -hmm. to us respectfully, privately about why they thought it was different. And we listened to them. We said, maybe it's wrong. We spoke to other administrators because perhaps our teachers had the right idea. I think that's very important. I want to move on to something related to what we've been speaking now about promotions. And that's the concept of, and this is a difficult topic, but protexia, the idea that certain people in certain communities or certain families, frankly, are more likely to get those promotions, whatever the promotion is. In some ways, I feel this can be, maybe this is overstating it, but a bit of an epidemic in the Orthodox Jewish community. There are some people who are part of the in crowd and some people who are not. And obviously, people make it in. I'm not trying to say that it's completely closed. But it also seems that some people are in positions that they have because of their last name or because of their background or choose your, choose your issue. That is not necessarily a healthy situation. 
how do we overcome that protect? See, I'll even back up. Am I right that it's a problem? And if you do see it as a problem, what do we do to combat it? Shmuel? The short answer is that you're going to have power imbalances that are going to happen in lots of different situations, whether it is that a uh, you have a school that uh, has a uh, teacher who's been there for a very long time and everyone feels nervous about telling them they can't be there anymore, even though they're not effective because they have uh, a lot of large support from the board or a large support from uh, respect in the community or other things that have to do with that. The second part is you're going to get people who have a, uh, an imbalance because, and there are a lot of teachers who unfortunately play to this, that they have a lot of parents or board members or donors who love them. And that even though they do X, Y, and Z thing crazy or bad or whatever it is, they have people who have given them, as you said, protexia in order to make sure they don't lose their job. It's natural for people, once you put them in that kind of system, to want to do that kind of behavior in order to protect themselves. At the same time, also, so we know it exists. So at the same time, we all know it exists. The question is, you can't eliminate human identity and, and human value of what, of what people do. People behave this way. Ramam tells us there's always going to be certain things that, that are always going to be around, and Avakazela is one of them. So it's, it, it's the idea that you're always going to have people who are going to do these kind of behaviors. A couple of things we talked about in this podcast is to pull them out and put them together will help balance that and eliminate some of those issues. One of them is respect. One of them is love for the goal of wanting to create students who are really strong, self-regulating, understanding students who are want to be close to Judaism and want a relationship with God. I think that, that if we're close to that goal, we have respect, and we have the idea also of a natural concept that everyone has made the Tzalem Elohim. I think that you're gonna, that's going to go a long way towards eliminating those advantages. Rachel? I feel like this is a topic for a whole other podcast. I think you're right. There's really two things. One is that the purposeful, you know, I'm, I'm going to promote this person because of that person's name. And I really appreciate what you said, Shmuel, whether, you know, this person used to be a rock star and they post or they, they, got, they got this kid in. This, this teacher always gets these kids into the Ivy, so I can't get rid of them or, you know, whatever. Or I'm afraid that if I get rid of this teacher or give them any negative constructive criticism that they're going to badmouth me in the teacher's room and it's just not worth it. You know, there's that piece. But then there's the second piece of, and this goes to exactly what we just said about needing to know the people. Like if I, as an administrator, really knew all my staff and got to know them and saw their strengths, just like those, you know, B plus students in my class and what am I doing to push them? I think that would help. And I think that part of it is who likes to hang out with the administrator? So if the administrator is a man and, and the man is looking around and it's mencha and he's on his side of the machitza and there are no women on his side of the machitza, it won't occur to him most of the time to wait or to seek who are the women on the other side of the machitza who I might be talking to. So like those admin decisions that get made after Menchan Shahari and exclude all the women in the administration, that's an example of convenience that's really painful and, and hurtful and, and to the detriment of the school. Totally but true. That would be, but I think that, you know, I, we should have another podcast just about women in uh -huh. leadership. Oh, wait, uh, is Prisma running an entire cohort about this? Why, yes, yes, we are. But the point is, I love I yourself promotion. Love it. <laughs> it's not about me. It's about the world. You know, let's, let's help. What does it help me help you? But um, <laughs> I, I think I think that there's the purposeful allowing of it. And then there's the habitual. I didn't even know I was doing that. I'm just I'm just trying to keep the buses, you know, the trains running and I'm not being thoughtful about it. It's a lack of um, intention, but we can do better. The thing is, is we're I, I think we can't 
we have to remember that there's a lot that we're asking all of our teachers and all of our administrators and all of our donors and all of our, everyone has to remember everything is not going to be. We start slow. We think about who do we want to be? What are our values? Each, and this is where each institution would be different. And what does it look like? So if I'm an institution that really believes it in whatever this value is, and I, and I make the healthcare benefits so difficult to, to, to join that I know of a, a number of yeshiva day schools where 70% of their faculty cannot afford the health insurance. So they wait, they, none of them are on health insurance. So they wait until there's a chasashama problem and the school will just give them tzedakah money to help them in that one case. That feels really not okay in terms of our values, but what's gonna be the cost, right? So I think being mindful of the stuff that's purposeful, trying to get more aware of the things that is not purposeful. And that means having audits about myself and my values. And as an administrator, as a school, how do you feel? What would it look like having those conversations and different modalities and growing? I mean, Rachel, I still haven't gotten past what you said about standing around after Mincha, only because that's such an obvious blind spot that I'm sure most men probably have. It's not selfish. It's not being done on purpose. It's simply lack of awareness. And that does deserve its own podcast, certainly. There's more. I I know. (laughs) I don't know as well as you know, but I do know. I do know. We don't have that much time, but this has just been so fascinating for me. I really feel, this is not Hanifa, this is genuine. I feel like I've been sitting in a graduate seminar in education, one I never got myself. I want to ask you both on a different topic. How can teachers avoid repetition and boredom? When I was a teacher, that was my biggest problem. As the years went on, I felt I'm doing the same thing every year. And especially if you are teaching the same curriculum every year, what would you suggest, Rachel? And then we'll go to Shmuel. How can a teacher make sure that he's always fresh or that she's always fresh and feeling that material like it's new in their eyes? I think Pesach spoke about this last time. It's not about the material. I'm not teaching material. I'm teaching children, teaching people. So if, as long as I, I have to get really curious about each person that I'm honored to be facilitating their learning. And it cannot look the same every year because of the makeup and the, and, the, and, this, and the context of this class and where they came from and where they're going to and what they're living with. So the, the material is, is the yesh v'yesh, but the, the challenge is this particular group. Shmuel? I think that you have a, a, a case here again, if you don't understand your role in the problem, you can't have a role in the solution. I, I think that uh, a lot of times there are two different levels that teachers go at the year with, which is a structural level and a spiritual level in Judaic teaching. And one of them is that if you're teaching the exact same lesson plan that you've been teaching for the last several years, going into the, you know, the, the different weeks of this, you're teaching your Miyahu and you're teaching the exact same thing. Uh, there's really a, a problem. It's not just a problem of you getting bored. It's a problem of you not being fair to the students. There are certain things that are very, very important. The students need to know. Okay. I agree. But if you don't vary it up by the, how the students are changing, the students that are right now in that we're having, we mentioned this several times, they are not the same students that we had 15 years ago. They are a very different set of people with a different set of needs and different social context. And as a result, you have to change that structurally. Spiritually, like what Rachel was saying, which I agree totally, but just to really name it, is to say you need to look at every student. And then when you come into the year and not just say, I'm humbled that I'm learning with you, but at the same time, what can I do as a hashba? What can I do as a, as a way of changing you? Is it my role modeling? Is it talking to you about a problem? Is it uh, having a conversation with you where I notice that you are clearly dysgraphic and no one's figured it out before? There's lots of things that, that are going, not that I can diagnose, but that I can point people. But there's an interesting idea there of being able to get to know every student so that when you have 
this, you know, when you're going to report out to the students and parent teacher conferences about those students, you're going to look at it and say with each person when they come in, that same Rado Ogilmuth face. What Rado Ogilmuth face is what I actually really thought about when I was doing parent teacher conferences is the big smile. Oh, I love teaching your student. They're so wonderful. They're so fantastic. You know, there's some things I might want to work on. It's this, this, and this, and this is maybe their next challenge. But that's what those should, it shouldn't look like every time a parent walks in that you like take a deep breath and go, okay, here we go. It shouldn't be like that. It should be really this concept of, of relating to the kids spiritually. Right. And I, I would, I really love that you said that. I would add that um, there's more children diagnosed with learning disabilities now than ever before. And so the challenge, the, the gift of having the same material being repeated is that I don't have to relearn it but I get to go to some of the experts in the building who are masterful at learning disabilities and differentiated instruction and say, listen, I got this material. Help me try some new things to, to, to give the kids better access and mastery. This idea also of keeping that image of Rabbi Walgamuth and the people who did not go to Maimonides don't have the fortune that we all have, keeping that vision in our head of what a teacher should be. And I'll add, by the way, Rabbi Simkovich, because he was for sure. myself that was i know he was under both my chuppah and shmuel's chuppah so this is something that uh and rachel and rachel and Ra oh and rachel too okay so someone who's <laughs> under all of our chuppahs that's a pretty uh that, that tells you something about what we think of him we're almost out of time but i have two more questions and my first question is almost a radical question we might not have enough time to deal with it properly in fact i'm sure we won't but i'm still going to throw it out just as a theoretical when day schools first came on the scene in the early 20th century, they were hailed by a lot of people who appreciated them as the solution to intermarriage, the solution to assimilation, the solution to Jewish continuity. Is it time now, I'm not saying to throw out day schools, but is it time now to think about additional institutions that have not yet come on the scene? Earlier in this podcast, we talked about thinking outside the box, ideas that we haven't yet thought about, how our students themselves are going to be working in jobs that don't yet exist. Maybe there are institutions that don't yet exist that we have to create that can perhaps make up some of the lacks that exist in our existing institutions. What do you both think of that? I think that one of the problems with Jewish day schools in the Orthodox world is that they've become a little bit like the European model where they don't actually teach them the real stuff until they do the finishing school in Israel. Um, whereas and they the rely on that. They, and they rely on that. And it's, it's on a whole bunch of websites and a whole bunch of people I've spoken to. And a whole bunch of people in Israel are very clear to just get them to Israel so we can fix them. Um, I think that the, the first thing that has to happen is a realization that uh, there is something going wrong and that we have that kind of expectation and that design. We need to change that. If it's by other institutions, that are uh, they're going to focus more on the psychosocial understanding of the student and their social emotional learning in a certain way, that's fine. But much more importantly, I think that we can really solve some of these issues, some, not all, but by shifting a core concept that I think is really which is the idea of grading students A, B, C, and D. It came out of uh, Cornell University in the early 1900s. It matched with the public school system in the 1920s where they thought this was a great idea. It spread across all the world uh, in, in pre-World War II. And now what we have is a situation where you have students who are caring about the result instead of caring about the process. The process is the creation of the student. The result is a grade on a report card. I think if you eliminate the concept of grades in Judaic specifically, I think you're gonna have a very different kind of world and different kind of dynamics. That isn't to say tomorrow eliminate grades because no one knows how to do that in most places. But there are lots of ways of talking about mastery, and there are schools that I know of that are doing it. So it's not a situation that is an impossible dream. Love all of that. Yes, Anne, Shmuel. 
I'm not sure if it, we need more institutions, but I'm thinking that we need improved practices within our institutions. And, and you know, it'd be interesting if there were better cohorts for new teachers and um, um, cohorts for new board members and groups that really actively seek out um, how do we keep costs low for our community institutions from benefits to ordering supplies on the job mentoring program? What about second career educators? People who like what would be what would uh, Chicago has a great program going on with that right now about training second career educators. And what does that look like in a school? So how do I how do I set up a school to be a place that is successful for them and who's thinking that through? And what does it look like to mentor and coach different people at different places in, in a really effective ways? I'm not sure. Um, that that's an institution. It's modifying. And like I would even talk about recruitment. I, I think I want I, I wanted to say this before, but I remember now. We need to get rid of cynicism in connection to the phrase teachers. Like for example, you know, so um, you know how much I make as a teacher. I don't want the kids to always hear how little teachers make. No one else. Like we have to get rid of those cynical comments. You know, so or we're giving examples. So you grow up. You want to be a teacher or. Or, or a doctor or a lawyer. Teachers are something you want to be from the get-go, right? So teacher is something you want to be. We don't, we're not sarcastic about teachers and how much they make and how little respect they get. We're not giving into that. I'm not going to surrender. It, I'm, very, I, I'm very sensitive about marriage jokes. I don't like jokes that say that the husband is just quiet. I'm not, I'm not going to perpetuate that story. No one benefits from that. It's not funny. And I don't think it's, I don't want people to think that that's acceptable. So let's only say the things we mean and not hide behind, you know, given socially acceptable cynical jokes that perpetuate mediocrity. Okay. One final point. I want to quote Rabbi Simkovich in our last podcast about education when he said that it's a bit disheartening to have this conversation because he's been having the same conversation for 30 plus years and things don't change. So what is going to make this conversation different? I don't mean specifically on this podcast, but how can we really change the conversation so that it's not just the same thing that in 30 years time we'll be discussing again? How can we actually convince people that, no, this time something is going to change for the better in a way that has not yet happened? I think that um, if you have the same systemic structure, you're going to have the same systemic result. That's That's just what happens. If you create a situation in which you are running a school approximately the same way that they ran uh, nonprofit organizations in the 1970s and 80s. You're going to wind up with uh, a lot of issues of heavy administration uh, and not being able to pay the teachers as much. I think that that's one of the things that winds up as a structure in a lot of, in a lot of day schools for a variety of reasons. And I think that you then are very reliant on parents and therefore the board feels it has a greater voice and you wind up with further systemic issues. This, what I've described is stuff that I remember having my parents come back from Maimonides board meetings in the 70s and 80s, or, or reporting of people who went to those meetings. And the same arguments, same same type of things about this. And then, of course, you're going to get the one person on the board who decides because we're not teaching Rashi in a certain style, that's why our children are going off the dark. There, there's a lot that's, that's in there, but I'm going to tell you specifically that the way to get out of this conversation is to completely change that structure and uh, the way to change that structure is as varied as there are Jewish day schools in the United States. I think there's two things working in our favor. One is, like I said before, it's the fifth industrial revolution, 21st century skills, 
the fact that COVID hit, the fact that we have more mental health issues than ever before, we have more learning disabilities diagnosed than ever before. There's an urgency of the world around us that has perpetuated the need to adjust. We have to respond. The second thing is, is that people are going to make the difference. Institutions, not so much, meaning it's one person and one person and one person and one person and one person. I'm not trying to be cute, but it's true. So enough people are talking about it, but the things that I think we need to be talking about is what can I do instead of what can they do instead of if only they. So I think it has to be our challenge. This is just like we used to talk in the hallways of Maimonides back in 1986, you know, hanging out, talking about advances in education, right? Sure. But this was really, really great. And I appreciate you both coming on the podcast. And Bezrat Hashem, you know, the two of you together working on what you're working on will really affect change in such a positive way. And certainly the Jewish world will be better off if the ideas that you're perpetuating and talking about today would become de rigueur and standard in our institutions. So Rabbi Shmuelfeld and Mrs. Rachel Dratch, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you for having us, Scott. Thank you so much for all you do. And thank you, Scott. Really appreciate you keeping the issues out there in front of everyone. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.